Hey, we're in a sermon series right now. As I mentioned, we're going through this topic of worldview. You know, your worldview is how you understand the world. You see the world, you interpret the world. That's how you decide what it is you believe. What you believe determines what you value, what you hold to be important. And what you value, what you believe to be important determines how you live your life, what your behavior, what your choices, your decisions, what they are, how they look. And so we talked last week in this series about is there such a thing as truth? And if so, where do we find truth? And we answered that with our biblical worldview that truth is absolute. It is found in the inspired and errant, infallible, unchanging, authoritative, everlasting word of God. And we said this about the Bible, that the Bible, do you remember this? Is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of eyewitnesses. These eyewitnesses report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings were divine in origin and not human in origin. So today we want to look at the second big question that we're dealing with, and it is a biggie. It is the question of, does God exist? And not just that question, does God exist? But if he does exist, what is he like? Is he a God that is indifferent or is he a God that is involved? Is he a God that is hands off or is he a God that is hands on? Is he a God that is really kind of sedentary in nature or is he a God that is sovereign to the utmost? The moral, therapeutic, deistic worldview would say, yes, there is a God, but he's not, he's not really involved in the details of our lives. He just simply exists just to kind of, you know, oversee everybody and take names if anybody acts ugly. His main objective is he kind of sits back viewing us from far away is that he just wants you to be happy and just live out your truth and, and be nice and let's all get along in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. The, the, the Marxist, the secular humanist would say, there is no God. That's a, a, a man-made construct that he is not real. Well, we're not gonna spend a lot of time on that today. We're gonna talk about where we come from, the biblical worldview. We would say, yes, God is real. And, and God is not indifferent, God is involved. God is not hands-off. He is very much hands-on. God is not sedentary. God is sovereign. Now, if you're taking notes, we've already answered some really big questions today. Did you get them? Does God exist? Yes. Is he sovereign? Yes. Here's a third question. What do you mean when you say God is sovereign? Well, recently when we were preaching through the uh, story of Joseph there in the Old Testament, which is a book that says a lot about the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of all things. I made this statement. Let me remind you of it because you probably don't remember me ever saying this, but I said it from that sermon series that the sovereignty of God means that he is reigning. He is presiding. He is governing. He is ruling over all things. And that word all is a really big word. He's ruling over all all things. Psalm 103, 19 says the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all his kingdom rules. That's the present tense. God didn't rule in the past and is no longer reigning now. 
God's not going to reign one day in the future, but isn't reigning right now. God ruled in the past. He's going to rule in the future. And God is ruling and reigning and presiding and governing and controlling all things right now. Your brain synapses are popping right now because God is sovereign. Your lungs are producing air right now because God is sovereign and he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let me give you some quick examples about what God is sovereign over. Number one, you ready? God is in control of things that seem random. Right before the first service, somebody said, I'm here today because I kept randomly bumping into people from your church. Well, random is not a real thing. God is sovereign over those things that appear to be random, that seem to be random. Look at Proverbs 16, The lot is cast into the lap. That's like dice. But it's every decision is from the Lord. Something that may seem as random as just rolling the dice. The Bible says God's in control of that. He's sovereign over that. You know, we're coming up on football season, and so it might be fun to talk about luck, right? It might be fun to think about things like luck, or sometimes you hear people talk about karma. There's no such thing as luck. I'm sorry to hurt some of your feelings, but it's time your daddy told you the truth. There's no such thing as luck. Karma doesn't exist. We, we have our fun superstitions, but there's no reason to be truly superstitious or even a little stitious. There are, there, there are no nebulous forces that are working in our world today that we can manipulate because we wore a certain pair of socks or because we rubbed a rabbit's foot. You know, most of us probably talk in a fun way, and I do too, right, about luck and and things like that. But here's the deal. When you start to believe those things are real, then you're no longer holding to a biblical worldview. That's, That's not being consistent with the biblical worldview. Secondly, God is in control of all of nature. I mentioned Job earlier as God took Job on a tour of everything that he had made. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Or I love this out of Matthew chapter 8. Jesus has just calmed the storm. And the guys there in the boat said, the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Third, God is in control of all animals. He's in control of all animals. Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Sparrow, worthless, common, little, insignificant, ordinary bird. And Jesus says, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He's even in control over every little bird that may fall out of its nest. Now you may go, well, why then would he let a bird fall out of its nest? Well, stick around. We'll get to that. Number four, God's in control of all the nations. He's in control of all the nations. God's kingdom split in the Old Testament, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, southern kingdom, kingdom of Judah. They got a king by the name of Jehoshaphat. Listen, if you're expecting a baby, put that name on your short list. Jehoshaphat, jumping. He's destined for the NBA, right? 
And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations in your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. No nation does anything without God allowing it to happen without God being sovereign over it. We read in Psalm 33, verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Number five, God is sovereign over all human decisions. Now, this is a big one. He's sovereign over all human decisions. Somebody's thinking, wait a minute, preacher, did you just say that we don't have free will? Oh, no, we do have free will. But you just said God's sovereign over all our human decisions. I, I know he is sovereign all, over all our human decisions. And, and we could try to take a lot of time today to try to explain how you have what seems like conflicting truths. God's sovereign over human decisions and man has free will. But I've been down that path countless times and it always ends up in the same place. The Bible says this and the Bible says this and I can't make them do this. But because the Bible says that, I believe that. And the Bible says that and I believe that. And so that's all I got. I believe both are true. And by the way, I'm cool with that. I'm really cool with a God that's wrapped up in some mystery. It, it really just helps me worship him in a more authentic way when I've got questions that I don't have answers to. He's bigger than I can comprehend greater than I can imagine. And I'm okay with that. Proverbs chapter 16, verse one says, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Verse nine, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. 1921 of Proverbs, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 21, one, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Yes, God is sovereign over the decisions of man. I mentioned Joseph earlier. You know, Joseph's brothers, they make this horrible, terrible, evil decision. We're going to throw our brother in a pit, sell him as a slave. But God was sovereign even over that terrible decision that they made. Terrible decisions that people have made about you toward you. God is, he's sovereign even in those moments. And when you get to the end of the story of Joseph, after everything is settled out and he's reunited with his brothers, listen to what he says in verse 50 or chapter 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He was sovereign over your choice, your thoughts, your decisions to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Here's what Joseph just said. Joseph just said, I was the little bird that got pushed out of the nest. And I didn't just hit the ground. I went in the pit. But God was sovereign even over that day when I got shoved out of the nest. He was in control. There was a purpose. There was a plan. What am I telling you today? Does God exist? I'm telling you God is. And I'm also telling you that God is sovereign. Here's the good news. Here's what that means. It means the devil's not in charge of you. That means other people are not in charge of you. That means that fate, there is no such a thing. It's not in charge of you. Your circumstances are not in charge of you. You are not in charge of you. God alone is in charge of our lives. He is sovereign over all things. And that truth is precisely why some people are choosing to say, if that's the case, 
then I don't believe in God. You need to know this, and you may be here today thinking, hey, I'm one of those people. I don't believe in God. I'm just here hoping maybe I hear something that helps me a little bit. Or maybe you would say, I'm agnostic. I don't, I don't know if there's a God or not. I'm open to that. I'm glad, you're, I'm glad you all are here today. But I need you, I need you to understand this. this. My worldview comes from this amazing book. And God's word declares that in reality, there is no such thing as an atheist. You, in reality, can't find one in the world anywhere. Or you'll find plenty that say they are, but they're not really. Because here's what the Bible says, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. I don't know if you did this when you were a kid, but you had a beach ball and you're in the swimming pool and let's see who can hold the beach ball underwater the longest, right? It became this competition of suppressing the beach ball under the water as long as you possibly could. The Bible says this is how people who say there is no God, they know there's a God, but they're suppressing that truth. They're holding it down as long as they can, but you can't hold it down forever. Verse 19 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In other words, nobody's going to stand before God at judgment day and say to God, I didn't know you were real. I didn't know you existed. Nobody's going to be able to do that. And many, and I'm certainly not saying all, but many of the atheists and agnostics that I've met, they're angry at God. If you listen closely, you might hear them say something like this. If God is real and he's the God that you Christians say he is and he's the God of the Bible, then why is there all this evil and suffering in the world? That's a good question. And that very question, by the way, proves what Romans 1 just said. They believe in God, but they're trying to suppress that. You say, well, why do you say they believe in God? Because according to their worldview, there's no absolute rights. According to their worldview, there's no absolute wrongs because there is no God. But yet they're angry and hurting and upset because of suffering and evil in the world. But according to their worldview, there's nothing wrong with evil. There's nothing wrong with suffering. And now to be able to say, I'm angry and I'm upset because of evil and suffering in the world, you're having to borrow from my biblical worldview to make your case. If there are no absolutes, how can pain and evil and suffering be absolutely wrong? See, the anger that they carry, the hurt they carry, the pain they carry is evidence that at best they're only trying to suppress for a moment the truth about God. 
They may say that the world is a cosmic accident and that God does not exist and there's no absolute rights and wrongs, but that's not consistent with the way they're living their life. They're angry. Something's not right. And they know that. Their anger over pain and suffering says they do believe that there are rights. They do believe there are wrongs. They do believe there's a standard of right and wrong. Don't miss what I'm about to tell you. People know in their hearts that God exists. They just don't like the God that they think that he is. They don't get upset when on the animal planet, the hyenas take out the pigs. That's not considered a moral evil. But when people are in play, all 8 billion of us see it the same way. Why? Because God's written his law on our hearts. Because there is a God. And he does have a law and he does have a standard. Now I can almost guarantee you that if you would have a meaningful conversation with somebody that doesn't believe in God, you're eventually going to hear them say something like this. Hey, look, I see all the pain and the hurt and the suffering in the world. I mean, there's children with cancer and there's women who are being abused and there's all this sickness and disease and war and death and pain. And I want to fix it, but I can't. But you're telling me there's a God that can, but he won't. If God exists and he is like you Christians say is, then he would fix all this stuff, but he's not fixing all this stuff. So therefore, I don't believe that he's real. I don't believe he exists. Let's be honest, Christians. That's a pretty good argument. And some of us, I think, would have to admit there's been times we've had those same questions. We've thought some of those same thoughts. Our minds have gone down that very same path as well. If God is real, why didn't he heal my child? If God is real, why didn't he restore my marriage? I prayed and prayed and my spouse died anyway. What's the point? See, there's real pain in those questions. And oftentimes there's real anger in those questions. And the pain toward God is real and the anger toward God is real because in their heart they know God is real. And so do we. But they believe that he's either impotent or he's indifferent or he's cruel. Therefore, they don't care. And some are so hurt and so angry that their whole life seems to become about that. Their identity seems to become there is no God. And if there was a God, I would hate him. And, and, and sometimes that even becomes their mission to spread to the rest of the world. I want everybody to know there's no God. Some of our college students who are just entering college going into your freshman year, some of them are moving back in the next week or so. They're going to see this a lot probably in some of the schools they're going to. You're going to meet some people who may be so passionate about being an atheist that they get mad at you because you're not. And listen, students and adults too, when you find yourself in that place, I want you to remember this. Hurting people hurt people. 
there's a good chance that person, and I remind you, they're an image bearer of God. A person that God wants to save by his grace. And I want you to be mindful that there's a good chance that they're hurting. There's a good chance that they're bitter, that they're angry because there was a time in their life that they thought God would fix something. They thought God would save the day. They thought God would hear their prayer and answer their prayer. But he didn't. And so that brings me to the fourth question of the day, and it's this one, and here's the big one. If God is sovereign, pastor, like you say the Bible says he is, then why is there suffering in this world? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? And before we dive into that, I, I just want to say a few things. If you've gone through suffering and you have negative feelings and emotions toward God today or maybe toward those of us who believe in God, I want you to hear from me today that this preacher does not have any answers for you that can change the past. I don't have any answers for you that can change the situation. I don't have a magic wand today that could just take your pain away as if it never existed. If I could, I would. I truly would. If we were not in this format today, and if you're here with those hurt and pain and questions, or you're watching on live stream, or you're watching sometime later, just know I would prefer this wouldn't be the format that you and I would have this conversation. I would prefer that you and I just one-on-one could get together because I'd want to hear you. I'd want to hear your story. I would want you to feel like you could Explain to me why you've been so hurt and why you've been so disappointed. I would want to listen. I'd want to show you honor. I would want to be your friend. You don't have to believe in God for me to be your friend. I think we can all agree that we all need friendship. You don't have to be alone in the hurt and in the suffering. I would prefer that I wasn't standing behind this. I would prefer that I had my older tennis shoes on and you and I could just walk a lap around the lake and just have this conversation because I really want to hear you. I really want to get to know you. I just want you to know that somebody cares about you because none of us are exempt from hurt. None of us are exempt from pain. None of us are exempt from disappointment. None of us are exempt from loneliness. Not preachers, not Christians, not agnostics, not atheists. None of us are. If you aren't sure that you believe in God today and maybe there's some strong emotions in you that you carry around, I want you to know I get that. And standing behind this pulpit, I know I run a really high risk of coming across very disconnected from your world and your reality. And I promise you I'm not because I don't live my life behind this pulpit. I'm, I am in the midst of what is most real in this world on a daily basis. And so the fact that you also have drank deeply from that cup, I get it. And I know that this format that I'm in right now kind of seems like I'm aloof and over you and talking down to you. And I have a sermon to ram down your throat and arguments to bring to the table. And that is not the way I prefer us to have this conversation, but this is where I am at this moment right now. But tomorrow, if you want to bring your tennis shoes and walk a lap around the lake, man, I would be delighted. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. But let's try to talk about this as best we can, okay? 
Write this down. There's this thing called the problem of suffering. And this is why some of you don't want to believe in God or have chosen not to believe in God because of the problem of suffering. The problem of suffering says this. If God is good, he would want to stop the suffering in the world. If God is all-powerful, he could stop the suffering in the world. But there's still suffering in the world. So therefore, God must not be good. Or God must not be powerful. Or there is no God. Well, let's talk about that. There's two kinds of suffering. First of all, there is a suffering in this world that comes from moral evil. Moral evil is simply bad people doing bad things. People murder, people hurt, people harm, people abuse, people rape. These are all moral evils. There's a second kind of suffering in this world that comes from natural occurrences. Things like tornadoes and floods and hurricanes and diseases and accidents, cancer, things of that sort. Well, let's take the first one. Let's talk about moral evil to begin with. The fact that every human seems to agree that there is such a thing as moral evil once again declares, we all know God's real. We know there's a standard. We can say in our worldview, there is no absolute truth until your spouse is murdered. Then that's absolutely evil. It's absolutely wrong. Your worldview breaks down, see? Your worldview, every, by the way, every worldview apart from a biblical worldview lands at a place of absurdity. It will fail to make sense. But the fact that there is evil in the world, what we call moral evil, is actually evidence for God's existence. Because we all agree, murder, rape, abuse, these things shouldn't happen. There's a reason we don't get upset when the hyenas attack the pigs. They're animals. But our worldview says we're all the same. They're cosmic accidents. We're cosmic accidents. Shouldn't we kind of think of it the same way? But we don't. And here's why we don't. Because inside all of us, we know that there's something unique, something divine about every human being. We know in us that we are created in the image of God. That is why when a mob of people jump on another person, we're outraged. That's morally evil. But we go home and we watch the hyenas do it to the pigs. Well, that's just nature. But your worldview says it shouldn't make a difference. There shouldn't be a distinction. We're just all walking bags of stardust is all we are. But that lands at a place of absurdity where it doesn't hold up. So because of this thing called moral evil, we know there's rights. We know there's wrongs. We know there's a God. The law of God's written on every human heart. We know there's a standard, but we're trying to suppress that. We're trying to suppress the truth of God. So moral evil and the fact that we would all agree that it's morally evil is actually evidence for the existence of God. Now, the atheist who's upset at moral evils isn't being consistent, are they, with their worldview? They have to borrow, Jeremiah, from your worldview to try to argue with theirs. They're stealing from your worldview to prop up their worldview. Now, here's the hard question. In a world where God is sovereign, why is there moral evil? Why does God allow bad things to happen at the hands of bad people? Why does God allow it? 
Well, let me give you four things to think about. You don't have to agree. You don't have to accept them. I'm just going to give you four things to think about. God allows moral evil for the sake of, number one, free will. I think we can all agree that free will is a good thing. Otherwise, we'd all be robots. But the fact that we all have free will means that there's always the potential for evil. See, God didn't create evil. God created free will. Those of us with free will, we created the evil. So God allows these things because he allows for free will. The second one is really close to that. It's love. For the sake of love, God allows moral evil to happen. You say, I don't understand what you mean. Because if God took away free will, God also takes away the capacity to love. Because true love is chosen love, not robotic. If I could be a mad scientist and step into a laboratory and design for you the perfect person, the person who did everything you wanted them to do without you saying it, the person who laughed at all your dumb jokes, the person who always said you were right, the person who found you to be the most interesting all the time. If I could design for you that perfect person, you know what? You wouldn't want that because it wouldn't be real, would it? That's not real. That's not real love. Real love, is, real love is chosen love. So God perhaps allows moral evil in this world because free will is here for the sake of love. God perhaps allows moral evils to happen for the sake of God's glory. Think about this. God will one day judge all moral evils. Not one of those will ever escape his wise and perfect and powerful justice. Not one. His justice, his righteousness will be exalted in that. What Satan is trying to use to mar God's character, God is actually going to use to magnify his character. Maybe God allows moral evil for our sake. Here's why I say that. Because if you're sitting here going, I just wish he would remove all moral evil from the planet then do you know who would be left in this room? None of us. Because in all of us, we have free will. And that means that each one of us has the potential for evil in us. And I think the honest people in the room would say, I have been a source at some time in my life of moral evil. And now here's how good God is. Rather than doing what we think is best and removing all of us from the planet, he stepped into the planet to redeem us, to change us. Now, intellectually, that all makes sense to me. And maybe to you it does. Maybe you're like, well, yeah, I don't, that's not going to completely change my mind. I get that. I understand that. But there's at least some mental anchors there that I can kind of grab onto and go, okay, okay. But emotionally, I hate it. I hate this ride. I hate this journey. I hate this hurt. I hate this pain. I hate this evil. Emotionally is a whole nother level of challenge when it comes to this, especially when it's things like natural disasters. You calm the storm for the disciples, but what about us? Why did the tornado hit our place? Why did the fire happen? Why did the hurricane happen? Why did my wife have to get sick? Why did, why did my child have to experience that? I don't know all the answers, but again, let me give you some things to think about. Why does God allow these bad things to happen? One thing is this. 
suffering has a way of making us better. That's not good news when you're in the middle of the suffering. And I probably wouldn't want to say that if I was in the middle of a lot of suffering right now. But man, I'm telling you objectively, I've watched it. I've seen it. Suffering has a way of changing our character for the better. It does. We aren't changed for the better in the easy times. We're changed for the better in the hard times. Suffering wakes us up to the deeper things in life. Suffering kind of gives us clearer vision. Suffering helps us love deeper. Suffering helps us hold people tighter, does it not? See, it's my suffering, it's my frailty that keeps me dependent on God, drives me to him. Not only to him, but my suffering and my frailty drives me to love my brothers and sisters and to be loved, to receive love from my brothers and sisters in Christ. Why did God, why does he allow these bad things? Secondly, think about this. Sometimes God's doing that to correct us. My children have suffered at moments in their life, like when they're reaching out for the hot stove. I rain down some measure of suffering in them on that moment, in that moment, right? so that they don't experience a greater suffering at some point down the road. So sometimes God may be using suffering to correct us. Sometimes God uses suffering to punish. Read the story of the Exodus and what happened to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh. If God doesn't punish wrongs, then he's not good and he's not just. Something else that I think about when I think about sufferings is I think about, fourthly, I think about Job. Everything that he suffered. And do you realize this? It had nothing to do with Job. Nothing. Job had no idea that what was going on was a battle in the heavenlies. He just happened to be the battlefield. It wasn't really ultimately about him. And God never tells Job why. He does take Job on that tour of the universe and says, Job, where were you when I put the stars here? Where were you when I did this? Where were you? And Job comes to the conclusion, hey, it was pretty foolish of me to wag my finger at God and go, you're messing up. You don't know what you're doing. Your suffering today might be like Job's. It might not have anything to do with you. God could be up to far more in that, through that, than you can think or dream or imagine. And that leads me to this fifth idea that's not found in the Bible, but it makes sense to me related to Job, and that's called the butterfly effect. You've heard of that, right? Butterfly flaps its wings, chain reaction. That happens, something happens as a result of that, and something else happens as a result of that. And a year later, there's a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico because a butterfly flapped its wings. Listen, you don't know how the events in your life are affecting countless people in countless ways around you. Maybe even a hundred years from now, people are being affected because of what's happening in your life today. Countless things are in motion right now in this world, and we don't know how the suffering that we are involved in right now connects to billions of things that may be going on outside of us. Why does God allow this suffering? Number six, because we live in a fallen world. This suffering serves to remind me the real problem here 
is sin. It's brokenness. But this suffering also reminds me it's not always going to be this way. He will make all things new. Now listen, those thoughts that I'm giving you, they're not going to satisfy us completely. I get that. That, That's no magic wand. But let me tell you, here's what I know. I'll kind of summarize it like this. Here's what I know. I know creation hasn't always been broken. I know that. Secondly, I know that suffering wasn't in God's original plan. This is not what God designed. It's not what God wants. Thirdly, I know that free will is good, but it is filled with evil potential. Fourth, I know God can use suffering for good purposes. Y'all aren't going to get all these written down. I got to go fast. Go back and watch this tomorrow. Share it with somebody tomorrow. I know suffering is temporary. I know that. Creation's not always going to be broken. This isn't going to last. I know Jesus is going to make all things new. And I know that God limits suffering and pain. I know this could be far worse. It's hard to imagine, but I know apart from the grace of God, this could be far worse than it is right now in this moment. Now, here's what I don't know. I don't know what God is doing in your suffering. I don't know that. You have no idea how many times broken people have looked at me and said, please tell me why. I've never had an answer. I don't suspect that I'm ever going to have an answer. I can't tell you why. I can't tell you why I'm sitting here with you picking out a casket for your baby. I can't tell you why. I can't tell you why I'm standing in your living room to tell you your teenage daughter was just killed in a car wreck. I can't tell you why. I can't tell you why your granddaddy did that to your grandmother. I can't tell you why. And I can't tell anybody in this room today, oh, this is why you're suffering. This is why you're going through this. I don't have an answer for that. It would be pure arrogance to pretend like I know. Pure arrogance to look at you and go, oh, here's why you're suffering. Listen, Christians, we're the worst at this. Don't pretend that you know why somebody's going through what they're going through. You do not know. Don't pretend that you've got it all figured out. Job had friends like that. Nobody needs friends like that. Now, if it's arrogant to act like I know what God's doing in the pain? Isn't it also arrogant to think, God, you're not doing anything in the pain? Isn't it arrogant to draw the conclusion he must be evil, he must be weak, he must not be good, he must not have enough power? 
isn't that equally as arrogant on the other side of the coin to point my finger at God in anger and say, you don't know what you're doing or you're puny, you're pathetic. Listen, only an infinite mind can know all the infinite things that are being affected because the butterfly flapped its wings in your face. If you have convinced yourself that God doesn't exist because all these bad things have happened in your life, then you got a mental capacity beyond what anybody else that I've ever met has. You've got it all figured out. We can know all of this intellectually, but we still get messed up emotionally. I get that. Maybe you're here today and you're just intellectually, you're a church person. You're like, yeah, preacher, I believe that God's sovereign. But inside, emotionally, I'm a wreck today. I get that too. It's okay to not be okay. Our world's not okay. And when we're not okay emotionally, you know, we might be able to look at somebody else's suffering and go, well, you know, the Bible says and the Bible says, but when it's us, when it's my life, when it's my health, when it's my wife, when it's my children, that's when I go, God, I don't get this. If you're not doing okay emotionally today and you're asking hard questions like that, I'm so glad you're here. And if you'll come back tomorrow, I'll put on my other shoes and we'll just walk and talk about it. I don't pretend to know what God's doing in your life, but I'd love to walk with you. Listen, Christians, we need to stop pretending like we have all the answers. Just shut up and put your tennis shoes on and walk with somebody. We need to stop trying to be Google in the flesh and just walk with somebody. God is too good for his people to run out with bad answers and cheap comfort. When suffering hits us personally, here's what we're going to do. We're either going to trust God or we're going to turn from God. That's what it comes down to, right? That's what happens. Now, if you're suffering today, let me give you a couple things. In love, I want to say these things to you. I know you don't want to hear this, but I love you, and I want to say these things to you in the middle of your suffering so you can say them back to me on the day that I need you to say them back to me when I'm in my suffering. Watch out for pride. Watch out for the attitude that says, by God, this should not be happening to me of all people. Watch out for the attitude that says this world should revolve around me. That's moral therapeutic deism. God exists for my happiness, my well-being. Watch out for pride. Secondly, watch out for anger. It's normal to get angry when you're hurt. But it's a terrible idea to stay angry. You choose to stay angry, you're going to destroy your relationships. You choose to stay angry, you're going to destroy your friendships. You choose to stay angry, you're going to destroy your marriage. Don't stay angry. So for my friends today who don't believe in God because of the problem of suffering, let me restate what the problem of suffering is. If God is good, he would want to stop the suffering. If God is all-powerful, he could stop the suffering but they're still suffering. So he's either not good 
or he's not all-powerful, or there is no God. I hear where you're coming from, but from my biblical worldview, suffering is not a problem for the existence of God. Let me walk you through my worldview when it comes to the problem of suffering. If God is good, he would want to stop suffering. If God is all-powerful, he could stop suffering. But he hasn't stopped suffering. That's what you told me, right? But see, you're missing one word. You're one word away from a biblical worldview. God does want to stop suffering. God can stop suffering, but he hasn't stopped suffering yet. Not yet. But he will because he is good. And because he is able to stop suffering in the world, God loved this suffering world so much that he sent his one and only son into it to suffer in it. Died a death he didn't deserve. Bore God's wrath against your sin and mine. So that by grace through faith, we might know an eternity where there is no more suffering, where there is no more moral evil, where tornadoes and floods and hurricanes don't ravage anybody's life anymore. Jesus suffered so that you and I wouldn't always have to suffer. Listen to these words from the last book in the scripture, verse three of Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Hey, listen, we took on some big questions this morning. Does God exist? Yes. Is he sovereign? Yes. Does he want to stop suffering? Yes. Can he? Yes. Will he? Absolutely. For those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ to be their Savior, your suffering has an expiration date. It will end. But if you choose today to be angry at God and continue to turn from Him and reject Jesus as Savior and Lord, your suffering hasn't even really begun. I know that may make you mad, but I care enough about you to tell you the truth and to tell you it doesn't have to go down that way. Today, you can trust Christ to save you. And if you're waiting to get all the answers before you do that, then you're never going to do that. But you know enough. You know I'm broken. 
I'm a sinner. I can't do this anymore on my own. And Jesus, I'm trusting you to walk with me in this life. I give you everything. I'm asking you to save me, to take my sin away and give me a relationship with you. It won't be easy from that day on. It's not, you're still going to suffer. But you won't suffer alone. And you won't suffer without hope. And you won't suffer without his promises. And if you're here today and you need to give Jesus your life, I can't go walk around the lake just yet, but I will step down here and we can talk for a second here until we can walk together tomorrow or later today because I brought my old shoes in faith today. I'm counting on walking with somebody around the lake today. Or you're here today and your heart's heavy because you got somebody that you love And they got those hard questions and you're watching the hurt and you're watching the anger and you're watching the bitterness. And maybe today you just need to come and put your face on the altar and say, God, would you just show up in their life and show out and resign yourself to not be in their savior or their Google in the flesh and ask God to give you wisdom to know how to navigate that. Let's stand. God, we, we know this has been a heavy, heavy topic to take on, but God, it's a heavy world we live in. Today is heavy. Today is hard. Today there are broken hearts. But because of you, Jesus... Our days will not always be heavy. Our days will not always be hard. Broken hearts will not always be our reality. Because of you, Jesus, one day, everything's going to be made new. And we thank you and we pray it in Jesus' name.